Welcome to the Journey of an Aesthete podcast, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Theo Haresh. It's great to be here. It's really great to talk to you. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, let yeah. me, allow me to introduce you. Um, normally on my show, we talk to you know musicians and actors and writers and people that we associate with the arts. Um, but with Theo Horish, we're actually talking to someone who is a political activist and organizer. And he's also a very accomplished author. Uh, you have a book out now called The Fascism This Time. Yes. Um, in the Future of What Global Democracy is the yep. subtitle. And that's a book you should go out and get. Um, it's very pertinent to what we're all dealing with now. Having said that, however, I, we have had these guests in the arts. Um, we did do one show that would be similar to this show. I actually, I actually had George K. Tab on, and we nice. talked about political philosophy, and I really, really enjoyed that. So I guess you might say on this show um, we're going to discuss, I guess, make it be a little, a, partly a political show. So I think I first met you in, what was it, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Yeah. When I was living there. When would that have been? That would have been in 2014, maybe 2013. Wow. And now, yeah. and now here, and now you're in Leeds. So I might understand correctly that you're studying there now. Yeah, I'm getting a PhD at the University of Leeds. That's beautiful. Yeah, focusing on cosmopolitan ethics. That's fantastic. Well, I hope we can get into some of that. But normally on, on my show, I do what I call linear chronology, which is a fancy way of saying personal biography. And Perfect. under the under the conceit that um, when you have a linear plan that's chronological, mm. nonlinear things, the stuff people like, will happen. Things will pop up out of co people's consciousnesses, and and uh, there'll be some surprises, and it won't be dry and academic. Love it. So, Theo, do you mind talking about your journey with, uh, well, with not only politics, but you started off as a musician, right? I started off as a musician when I was very young, mm -hmm. um, but I put a lot into it um, as a guitarist. And um, at some point in time, late in high school, early in college, I just began waking up to so many possibilities in the world, intellectual and political and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the music just kind of fell by the wayside. I think it was very um, egocentric for me. It's mm -hmm. not for everybody, but it was for me. It's interesting. So again, uh, I'm somebody who is a pianist, a composer, a musician. Um, and I was never, um, I think for the longest time, I always knew I wanted to do that. I think since I was the, a young child, maybe four or wow. five. And so maybe the, de maybe the age, the earliness of that, and the depth of my love of the arts made it so that it was, you know, you could say in quotes, inevitable. I would, I would do that rather than some, than something else. Interesting. Um, it's amazing to me how much music shapes your whole 
outlook on the world early on, the rhythms mm-hmm. with which you move, the way you mm-hmm. speak, um, the way you the way you experience your emotions and express them. I think the way it shapes us is is um, is deep and complex, and mm-hmm. at least Plato got at least that right. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, as you know, I'm not a – Plato's a whole other discussion. I'll go there. Oh, with, I'm not a Plato fan either. <laughs> right, but I'll, I'll go there if you want to go there. But, you know, there's a, that, <laughs> no, one, no. Of the, one of the advantages of someone like Theo Horish, there's nobody, of course, like you. You're totally unique. But um, on my show, a lot of the uh, guests we've had have been very, I would say, learned and very comprehensive. I mean, I've had guests on my show, and they're in, in the one particular field – and you find out that they're excellent in this field, but they actually know a little bit about other fields, and uh, they're not as uh, narrow as you would have, would suspect. And that's a that's a pleasant surprise uh, oh, with nice. this podcast. I've come into this over time and again. Of people, somebody will say, "Well, you know, I'm a painter." They're a, they're known for being a poet, and they'll say, "Well, you know, I'm I actually was going to be a painter, and I studied with Phil Guston, Philip Guston, and you know things like that. Just wild surprises." Uh, or actors who are really great musicians, or, you know, all the rest of it. So you're somebody who, of course, used to talk to me a lot about Lee Rittenauer and Aldi Miola, and so obviously you were, that was a big part of your life. Yeah. Um, But I guess for the purposes of our show, I guess the the thing we're going to discuss is politics. So how, you know, I was a political activist for 20 years in the 80s and 90s. And I turned my I turned my back completely on it for all sorts of complex reasons, um, and yet you're somebody that stayed. You stayed the course. You just you sort of am I right? You discovered uh, I, that, and you sort of stayed with it. So talk about um, yeah that. Well, I went off and on. Um, I you know the earliest the earliest outbreak of it. I was meditating a lot late in high school and um, I just began feeling for the world, um, feeling for the earth, um, all living beings. Um, A lot of times I would, you know, wake up in the morning and cry for the suffering of, of the world. And so at first my activism was incredibly spiritual, but activism isn't really spiritual if you want to be effective. So it might be motivated by it. It might, it might come from a really spiritual place, but you have to think a lot. You deal with a lot of, a lot of stresses, a lot of pressures, a lot of incompetence because a vast majority of activists are volunteers and those who aren't usually work unbelievable hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you're confronting hard truths, often things that people don't want to, um, hear or see or think about. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've, you've got to push that on people. Even mm-hmm. if you find a nice outlet like writing where you don't have to push anything on anybody, you don't have to raise, they all come to you. You're still, te- you're still a hard truth teller. So right. I, I did that in through college. Um, and I was off and on in college. I would go through bouts of doing intensive meditation and then do intensive activism mm-hmm. um, in a small town in Georgia wow. of all places, um, a really small college campus on the border of Alabama, um, which meant I was really alone. It was a really lonely place to be. 
And um, may I ask, may I interject and ask a couple of just factual questions? Uh-huh. Um, you mentioned meditation. It seemed to me almost out of the blue. Did you want to talk a little bit about your spiritual practice um, at length and describe to the listener what it was? And of course, now you're talking about the fruits of it. But what yeah. what was what were you? And I'm sure it's it continues to today. But do you mind discussing that? Yeah. I mean, I, I went through all kinds of different sitting meditations. Um, I, I would do Hatha yoga and Tai Chi as well, but um, I eventually settled on Vipassana uh-huh. meditation. So Southeast Asian Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism. Um, and, and a lot of it's focused on mindfulness. You're just aware of what's there. And if you go really deep with that, you know, if you're doing a couple of months of intensive meditation a year where you're spending all day, every day, um, sitting, just watching what arises in your body and mind, you're going to get into some really difficult mm-hmm. material, panic, angst, terror. Yeah. Um, you're going to confront emotions you didn't know you had, thoughts that most people would think were just utterly insane. Yeah. And you're also going to experience unbelievably beautiful transcendent states. And the idea in Vipassana and most Buddhist traditions is you just sit with that. You're just aware of it. You learn how to hold all of that inside yourself. Mm. So that becomes a container for holding the suffering of the world. And it becomes a container for confronting it while holding all of your other more beautiful, um, subtle and warm feelings as well. That's really that's really beautifully expressed. You know, one of the things about you that I that I do admire, and I have a few theories about it that I, I don't know if I'll get into, is that I guess you come to this subject of politics, and maybe how do I put this a more elevated motivation or place than a lot of politicos? Is I, in other words. You know, so you're you're saying that you know through your your practice of vipassana meditation in particular, you be, you that that's what got you thinking about justice issues and poverty and suffering. So it happened through that route. It's interesting. I think that I was. I think I had a had a predisposition from early on in life to see injustices and okay. to be very right. bothered by them. Um, could have been personality style, could have been that my personality style was shaped from being the youngest child. Mm. Oh Um, yeah. I, I, I've identified, do you you know um, Frank Soloway's birth order theory that later borns are always, uh, what is it? Later borns first. Oh, you're the youngest child. So yeah, later borns born to rebel. He says, he says, if you find a person who's a later, later born, who's not a revolutionary or liberal of some sort. Or a, fir- or a firstborn who's not a conservative, my theory falls apart. But I guess he was—I guess he was being hyperbolic or joking. But yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I, I think there's elements of that. I mean, of course, you can be a really responsible liberal, even a really responsible radical. Yeah. Um, but but I think there is an element of responsibility in that first child um, that that you tend to get, and. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I identified when I was a kid and now again, having recently seen the movie, the call of the wild, mm-hmm. I, I identify with Buck, this big dog that's, th- that's stolen from somewhere around San Francisco. I actually think it was, um, Silicon Valley now that he was stolen from. 
and uh, taken up to Alaska during the gold rush. Yeah. And he's giant, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know what he's doing. He's this really privileged dog. And so he kind of gets beat upon and then finds his strength. And as, as a little kid, I felt like that. I was, I was a huge kid, but I was picked on. Hmm. And um, then one day I just wrestled the bully to the ground and he bit my arm and ran off and everything changed. I had been building to that. I actually got inspired by Rocky. Um, yeah, that's a great movie. You know, it's, it's, fun. <laughs> it it's, no, it's really a beautiful movie. It, it's, you're the second guest to talk about Rocky. That's so funny. Uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, really wonderful indie filmmaker, Andrew Bajowski, who sort of invented what they call mumblecore, actually changed cinema history. We spent like 20 minutes discussing Rocky in the course of our <laughs> in the course of our discussion. But 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 getting back, so yeah, I want to I want to say, uh, if you don't mind, that a lot of this stuff is at least in part genetic. It's there from the beginning. A lot of these yeah. kind of deep spiritual, and they're sort of they're actually prior to what you do in life. So I'm with you when you say you already had a sense of. So what, I don't want to say that meditation caused you to become an activist or that you didn't have um, before that a kind of a conscientiousness or awareness. But I, but I, do, I do think you'll agree, though, that having said all that, that there was something about the spiritual practice that is a beginning, right, of a certain kind it, of politics, right? Is that fair? It certainly inspired me a lot. It also inspired me to leave politics a lot. Interesting. I had a, I had a mentor teacher late in high school that, um, I mean, several generations of students I've discovered called him the guru. He was, um, he, he somehow had managed to um, set up this gig where he was teaching philosophy classes in high school since the early seventies. And, um, he just really set me straight on engaging in the world Mm -hmm. and, um, approaching my spirituality in a very, um, non-escapist kind of way. Uh, so I think that influenced me a lot. Who knows where I'd be without it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's strange though. I think a lot of people have a strong sense of justice that they suppress because it's very difficult confronting major social injustices. Yeah. I mean, we're also deeply individual and unique. You know, in my case, um, I had to make a decision um, that for me, saving the world was not a priority at all. Yeah. Um, after doing it, for so I did it. So I actually learned that that's not really me. And that's not an easy decision to make because our, our culture does tend to valorize and think superior of those that are, you know, humanitarian and selfless. And so it's hard to sort of, but I had to be honest with myself and say, you know, and this happened around 9-11, like 99, 2000, the Y2K. I said, you know, I, I really turned my back on it. And to this day, you know, the only thing I'll do is I'll vote. That's about it. That's sort of like I said to myself, that's what I'll give the political sphere. I'll give, yeah. give it that much. I won't be totally, you know, a reprobate, you know, non-civic-minded person who doesn't vote, but I'm not going to do much more. And I have to say that this podcast that I'm doing is dedicated to the notion of the arts as a, as a healing force yeah. of uniting people. I know it's not everything, and not everybody sees it that way, but that's kind of the, the, the project. But again, enough about that. Um, I'm, interested, I'm interested, though, if you don't uh, mind – you're you're someone that to me has a lot of uh, emotional skills 
a lot of leadership skills. You're able to organize things. And I guess, am I getting too far ahead? Or does that come no, later? No, that's great. It's great. So how did that, did that, I guess, so take me back to, you're doing these, these the, the Vipassana meditation. When did you start realizing those those skills or the, those um, attributes, as I, as I, as I see them? This is interesting to me because it ties together so many strands. I mean, my first leadership experiences came through sports, oh, K wow. through 12 sports. Really, I stopped that by the 10th grade. Um, but I was always in one of those center positions, the center in basketball, the pitcher in baseball, the center halfback in, in soccer. Wow. And because um, I was a big kid, I didn't have to be that precise in my talents. All I had to do was have raw energy and strength and um and a feel for what was around me and i I think that gave me a sense of the feel for what was around me and it taught me discipline and then later in high school you know i'm 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 uh leading a band and um i'm writing the music and, and i see writing music as such a coordinating function i mean if you're dealing with writing the music for multiple different instruments and lyrics um You've really got to, you've really got to coordinate a lot of different emotional rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, both of those kinds of leadership, you're also dealing with lots of personalities and and abilities around you. Mm-hmm. And then as a small time activist on college campuses, I found myself. You've got to motivate, especially on a really small campus. You've got to motivate people to get involved. You've got to inspire them. And then you've got to facilitate them in meetings, which is unbelievably difficult in more radical circles where people are opposed to hierarchy. Um, It's not as if you can just say, okay, I'm the leader of this group and here's what we're doing, or let me take some suggestions. Here's what we'll do, or even we'll vote on it. Um, There was a sort of strong orientation around consensus. Right. Um, So that taught me a lot. And then so, later so, I went on to cooperative organizing. Hold that thought. I want to go back yeah. to the music. So, yeah, I've, I've been a lifelong musician. So what you're saying is that, well, sports too. For those that have not seen Theo Horesh visually, he's a very, very handsome, you know, tall, uh, very physically fit man. And, um, of course, I, I'm not surprised that you were sports, uh, good at sports. But but getting more to the topic of music, you're saying that music made you develop certain skills that you use to this day. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Do you mind talking just a little bit more about that without getting too? Yeah, I mean, I think that what what is okay. I mean, there's there's one thing that there's just, there's just the discipline of of practicing constantly, and there's the discipline of of perfecting a presentation, which is going to come out in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much that's tied to you're drawing something so subtle out of yourself. I mean, how is it that you transmute an emotion into notes and chords that go together and that you have these chords strung out in a chord progression and every time you play a solo over it, the notes come out differently based on how you're feeling. The ability to express that stuff is, um, I mean, it's magical uh, for anybody who's ever done it. And to get really good at it so you've got your own style and Mm -hmm. you can pretty much express whatever you want 
whatever whatever comes into your head you can lay out on the guitar or the piano or whatever it is you're playing mm-hmm. um you start to have an expectation that you're going to say what you want to say um yeah and and the, you start to have an expectation say with my writing now that that it's going to i'm going to set the right tone for it mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm going to buck up against any editor that's going to break my rhythm mm-hmm. um, to get the grammar right or break my rhythm um as an academic because um, I need to be signposting where I've come from and where I'm going. And I'm like, no, there's an emotional rhythm here that that's that's important. Um, that might be more important than what I have to say. Hmm. So it's a rhythm. So it's a rhythm thing. It's a thing, and and again, that's part of aesthetics, right? This is a journey of aesthetic, aesthetic podcast, and Absolutely. and so so I guess you saw early on that there's. Is this connected to the notion of one taste? Oh, interesting. I don't think so. You don't I don't think so. It, okay. Maybe, maybe it's come from that. I mean, there's a sense where you break down your okay. So in Abhidharma or Abhidhamma Buddhism is Buddhist psychology. You're going to break down the mind into multiple component parts, and so you're going to recognize that there is uh, something happening in your material body, and that there's a sensation. Mm-hmm. that happens in your body that includes visual sensations and auditory but they haven't even been formed into perceptions the the sense that there are i have a sense of objects out there in the world that i perceive now i then i form those into perceptions there's there's all of that stuff could change the material circumstances can change mm-hmm. the, the the um the sensations can be formed together differently the perceptions of what they mean the, the, the things that come into my field of vision right now, there's probably a hundred different things I could focus on um, that I'm seeing right now than the things I am focusing on. And then we have our reactions to those things. Mm-hmm. And so you start to break all of that down. The, the reactions in Buddhism, they'll say they're karmic reactions, but they're just reactions that you've got when I look at a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I have all kinds of associations that come up with it. And um when I look at a microphone, I have all kinds of associations and I know to do things with it. And I go into patterns of behavior around these things. And so um, to some extent, that ability to break down the world into its multiple component parts and to see your experience like that, you begin to see how you do the same. You do the same thing with any of your expression. Wow. And so in writing, you start to see, well, I just wrote this sentence down. And it says, um, Trump is a very bad man. But I could say that in so many, a hundred different ways to give it a different feeling. I could use different Mm -hmm. adjectives. I could make it a long sentence that rolls along beautifully and smoothly. Mm -hmm. I could make it sharp and punchy. Um, I could put an exclamation point at the end of it. I could put lots of commas in it so it's staccato and it breaks up and it moves along. And it feels like um, you're punching your way out of it. So you start to get a feel for how you could just break the world down into any expression you'd like. 
Well, I know that uh, it's funny you mentioned your own prose. You have a definitive style, Theo Horish style. I can recognize your writing from a sentence. Or, um, <laughs> and one of the hallmarks of it is is the, gen- the general statement, the general strong assertion. And a lot of we, you know, sort of we and then subject and then verb, we do this or, or they do or um, that's a that's a and that, that must be you must have developed that on purpose in terms of, I guess, trying to create a, your own sort of political writing, political essay writing. Um, Go ahead. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's actually, it's a thing in, in, uh, well, it's rhetoric, it's rhetoric, but it's also, um, uh, my brain is freezing right now, which is unusual for me, but, but any, any, any of that, uh, um, I, mean, I, I just say a little about it. Yeah, please do. Um, you know, uh, some of that comes from reading spiritual scriptures. Strangely, ah, you know, I've I can see like, that I can see that a lot of the great true. spiritual scriptures of the world, the Gospels or the Bhagavad Gita or the Tao Te Ching or um, uh, the Dhammapada. I would read these over and over. They're they're short books. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these will take you two hours, three hours to read. Um, one of the Gospels. Um, might take that long, uh, the Dhammapada or the Tao Te Ching. And so you read it 20, 30 times, and you have this feeling that there's a spaciousness to it, that it's saying something deep and profound. And there's a lot of a sense of a must that, 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 that there's this, and, and it's to meditate on it. It's just beautiful because, uh, for me, I'm not going to evaluate those things intellectually. I, I, have a very naturalistic view of the world. Um, uh, by spiritual, I just mean a sense of interconnection. I don't mean anything else mm-hmm. going on in some other realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going I'm to just I, accept I guess, it. I'm gonna let, I guess the word I was looking for was syntax. You're discussing syn- the art of syntax. Yeah, it's the word ordering. It's the way it flows yeah. along on the page. And, and um, so I always wanted that and everything else I'm reading um, – I mean, since it's transcendent, it, it, it stands above the world. You, mm-hmm. you don't have to evaluate it. And, and it, it it pauses your mental evaluation. Now, that's a little tricky if you're doing moral philosophy or you're writing about something quite deep that requires intellectual evaluation. Uh-huh. So that style doesn't always get read in the way that it should, which is people should think critically about what I'm writing. Uh-huh. But um, at the same time, it, I think it has a way of pulling pulling people in and moving them on some other level. I hope. Um, yeah. Well, it certainly it certainly is effective. I mean, it's certainly. And I, I only mention it by way of saying that it's something that you've cultivated. And it's saying and, and saying cultivated. that yes, and saying that it is a style. Um, there are many. Yes. There are, of course, many other styles. You know, I mean, um, but it, it is very much its own style. Yeah. Um, so anyway, anyway, back to activism, and, and that's growing the band. And I guess what years are we talking? So you're uh, college, and then after college. Yeah, think of the think of the think of the activism that's that's more like what you see, but what you see in in the world today among social justice activists and climate activists, yeah. 
that's going to be more college period. But yeah. most of the stuff they're doing now is more online. I don't, yeah. I don't get the sense that these people are doing a lot of meetings. But activism in the nineties, mm-hmm. far as I could tell, it was all about meetings. You yeah. just had to all the time. I yeah. kept recalling George Bernard Shaw's. Um, uh, quote that I'm probably going to mangle. The problem with socialism is too many meetings. Um, and a part of me says that that's been going on for 500 years. I just think, yeah. you know, well, you, you know, my take on that. I mean, I, I really, I'm going to say something more polemical than normally I would on this show. I don't like politics very much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of my critiques of the political altogether is it's it, because it's it, it's so interested in groups of people, yeah. And I believe at the expense of the individual. And this is something again. I you, you've heard me go on, and I know I'm frustrating frustrating in this sense because when I talk like this, some people think that I'm capitalist or that I'm going to go into an and ran thing. No, I just really think that there's this this dignity of the individual that just gets totally left out of social science social scientific accounts of life which is all groups and tribes, groups and tribes, demographics. I mean, even now, like it's, I mean, God, that the discourse now, you can imagine how, <laughs> how much I like what's going on. It's all, any, it's all anybody talks about. I actually, th- I actually think, hold on, let me, let me, let me continue. You, could, you, could, you yeah. can give me a rebuttal. I actually think that future historians will look on this age and the thing that the tragedy they will note is that we were so consumed by that, almost like we missed this wisdom we were so consumed by seeing things in terms of groups and community and that that was actually our undoing. I actually think in the future they will say that about us. But anyhow, go on. I've said too much. Do you, think, do you think politics needs to be like that? Well, let me, let me make very clear. I think we need politics. So in other words, politics is a yeah. necessary part of life. I'm not one of these people that says we shouldn't have taxation or that we shouldn't have a government. Heaven forbid. I mean, that's no. But I, but, but I do. What I do think is that secular culture has turned politics into a religion, and I, especially on the left, of course, and left and right, right both. And I think that's a mistake. So what? I, so what? So when you ask the question, does it have to be? Well, I think it might have to be because politics is about association and lar- It's about large groups of population, right? That's the nature of the political. Yeah. It's about relation, and relation is more than one, right? So you could say that it's almost cursed by that, you know. So 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 yeah. So so my initial response is yes. There's no way really around that. Um, does that make sense? So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I kind of I kind of start with Aristotle's humanity is a political animal. Yeah. Man is a political animal in, in his translated language, at least. Yeah. Um, uh, what does this mean? Well, we're social. Yeah. And we reason together about yeah. how we make our future. Yeah, uh, we uh, most of our lives are mediated through institutions of some sort that have been constructed in some way. Right. Um, we we we're constantly coming up against technologies that have been brought to us by businesses. We move on streets and infrastructure that was built by local governments. Mm-hmm. We. Um, we are constrained by laws that were um, set up by state governments. And um, then we could say we've got moral strictures that we put upon ourselves that are tied to social institutions like the family and, mm-hmm. uh, and marriage. And yeah. um, so, so we're moving through this stuff 
constantly. Now, to really engage it, um, I mean, the first thing seems to be that, okay, we're going to have to reason a bit. Um, that's hard to escape that. Even if you're just hardcore activists trying to push things through, usually a lot of what you're doing is you're giving reasons. You're mm-hmm. trying to convince people. Yeah. Um, at least to convince them to shut up, at the <laughs> very least. Yeah. Um, but usually you're trying to win people over. And if you're really smart, you're trying to win over your adversaries even yeah. or immobilize them by having such good reasons that for them to say anything else would be embarrassing or yeah. um, they'd, be ashamed, they'd be ashamed of themselves um, to argue against what you're saying. Um, yeah. And so that means giving moral reasons and it means thinking through sort of our, our duties to one another and how we all live together. Mm-hmm. So that's a very communal project. But then there's a lot of sort of protection and consideration of individuals within that protection. of Yeah. You know, Theo, I mean, you know, you know, I do reject Aristotle's initial premise, actually. Mm. Um, I don't think we're and Marx and Rousseau. I don't think we're primarily social. I think social is derivative. I think that comes second. And that's a that's a I guess that's where I part company with it. I guess a large tradition now. um, you know, see what I'm saying? So for, so for me, social, okay. for, so for me, social things are always already compromised to some degree. They're always going to be wanting. So, so to, and that in turn means that when we engage in social projects, we shouldn't expect the moon or utopia and we shouldn't, you know, we should just make do and try to be the best people we can be and, and, and soldier on. That's what I would say. But always with the remi- reminder that this is leaving out a lot of the most important things about us, about us, which is not social. And then interesting, so I'm almost, it's almost like, so it's kind of a metaphysical thing of like, you know, you're in the world and the world is compromised, and, right? But, yeah. but I certainly respect, I mean, of course, if you start from Aristotle, you know, Arist- who am I to criticize Aristotle? Brilliant mind. <laughs> Although I am, but, but you know, do you, what do you say to that to sort of um, – can you see? Can you see why I got out of politics? If I right, I'm consistent. Well, <laughs> you can't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you have to. I don't think to recognize the truths that Aristotle is expressing that I that I was mirroring in what right. I was saying. Right. You'd have to deny what you're saying. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely a sense in which well, we're all individuals. I mean, any given moment, we can. Um, we can, we can process a complex train of reasoning, arrive at a conclusion that nobody could have possibly imagined when we began mm-hmm. um, because of all the things we threw into it, which could have been really anything in the world that matters. We could have thrown into our reasoning process and we arrive at this conclusion nobody could imagine that sets us off on an entirely new, unexpected path. Right. Uh, Peter Singer put it nicely. I know you don't like him, but you might like this. Um, reasoning is like stepping onto an escalator um, that whose who's destination, we don't know where it's going to let us off. We don't know where it's going. Yeah. Actually, when I think about that, it's kind of absurd because you know where an escalator is going. It's like getting in a hot air balloon mm. and you go up and you just don't know which way the wind's going to blow you. Hmm. Uh, and you're going to land somewhere entirely unexpected. Now, 
I, I, sh- I should I should interject. I, you know, you say I don't like Peter Singer. Well, I do. I do reject both utilitarianism and consequentialism. So that's the only thing, right? So yeah. that's separate from <laughs> Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a wonderful writer. Do you agree? Which I could writer. keep. I could keep those two separate. Of course, some say you can't separate yeah. the two. But yeah, go ahead. So yeah, I just wanted to <laughs> make that clear. Hey, you know, I want to. I want to just take off on on that point. Um, yeah. You know, there's so little respect given to writers with whom we dis- disagree these days. I think that's a really, really important point. It you sucks. can recognize them as yeah. someone as a as a great writer, sure, as a great philosopher, moral philosopher, political philosopher, or thinker uh, that they have important truths. Yep. Maybe you say they're a great writer and they don't have important truths to convey, or they ha- they're a great writer and they have important truths to convey. They have important truths to convey that are part of the picture I've put together, but I reject entirely their project. Well, in the case of Peter Singer, he he forces us to ask hard questions. I mean, this is actually where I agree with him. Absolutely. Uh, the hard questions about – well, I don't want to get into real controversy. I, I tend to um, – well, I, I can see what I'm just – I'm trying to I'm – think, I'm thinking about how much do I self-censor. Um I don't. I don't take a hard line he takes on some issues, but I. But I. But I would strongly part company with the kind of. I don't know. It, is it? Is it? I would say it's a. It's a pro-family and nothing but family culture that we're in now, where family is everything, which has connections to, you know. Uh, you know, extreme anti-abortion, and so so it's complicated. So um, right. Peter Singer, Singer, but I mean, I guess what I, it's a long-winded way of saying of paying respect. Say at least he's talking about issues that are very controversial, yeah, in public and willing to write about them. Well, yeah, well, even here's, though, um, yeah. here's the big one for people who don't know Peter Singer. Some people will, some people will say he kicked off the contemporary animal rights movement in something like 1976 Absolutely. when you wrote the book Animal Liberation. I would say him and Tom Reagan, right? Would you give Tom Reagan some yeah. credit too? Certainly as philosophers, they yeah. did. Um, Francis Moore LePay wrote Diet for a Small Planet, which was a strong push for vegetarianism that sold like a million or two million copies right. in 1971. So there, there was something going on before that. But as a philosophical movement, he definitely kicked it into gear, and that was a major book for the longest time. So he does that, but also at the same time, he's at the forefront of um, kicking off the personal aid movement, the, the big movement where we give to all of these organizations yep. uh, for desperately poor people in other countries. And he does this as a philosopher, and he's yep. he puts the challenge before moral philosophers. Yep. And then... When it's when it turns out that well, AIDS not really nearly as effective as we thought. He plays a major role in kicking off the effective aid movement, which measures how effective right. aid is in certain places and tries to get people to give to the most effective organizations. In that sense, I mean, he's a real pioneer thinker who, who's pushing our boundaries on our commitments to other living beings. Um, you know, yeah. each of us has a has a circle of moral concern. Some right. of us are going to be concerned um, just with ourselves, and we might be called sociopaths. Uh, most will be at least mm-hmm. concerned with some close friends or family. Um, others will be concerned with 
people that they see in their lives, um, mm. acquaintances. They see someone and they feel them, they're going to be concerned for them. Others will be concerned with their nation, yeah. others with the whole of the world. Some will go forward into all people in future generations. Right. Some will extend that to all people in future generations and yeah. domestic domesticable animals. Some some will say all life on Earth. Now the question is, where are we you, going to? Theo, you used quite a strong term. You used the term sociopathic to say to refer to somebody whose concern is mainly themselves, right? Not mainly, only. Only, okay. Only would usually get that that. Um, Mainly, um, mainly is quite different. It, I guess it is different. So only, so you, you, that's fair. Only, um, I, when I think about that as a psychiatric category or a moral category or a medical category, I think that there's that that, that it has to have more than just, even just that um, to qualify. But it, but you know, your point your point's does. taken. But but I don't. Um, you know, for me, a lot of these things, Theo, are, ma- are, are matters of individual taste and preference. And, you know, so for me, there were, you know, people are going to, that circle is going to be narrow, narrower for some than others. It, now, you, you, can it, make a, you can make the case if somebody's circle is narrow, you can make a criticism of that person because it is narrow. Um, right? One could. I would never do that. I would never do that, but I know many do. Many philosophers do, certainly. Now, now what's interesting about moral philosophy and I would add to it. Um, I would add to it. Intellectual life in general in the humanities is right. that through reasoning about the effects our actions have on others by thinking through how human beings interact with one another, we begin to get a sense of the way our actions impact impact an ever wider circle of beings and it becomes difficult not to feel for them in some way and once we feel for them it's harder not to take on commitments to them which i think puts uh, puts a lot of well-read intellectuals who don't want to take on those kinds of commitments in a very difficult bind i mean you don't want to burden yourself so strongly with moral commitments that life becomes life becomes the bore and and everything is worrying about what you're going to step on and use um and certainly that that, that would be but see that precisely would be would be my critique of that i mean as you know as you know i don't think there's something we're all supposed to do yeah i don't because not only do i not think there is a thing we're all supposed to do Generally defined, but who's going you know, who on who, whose authority is gonna, um, you know, fill in the blank of what that is. So there's that problem I have with that. But um, you just, you just, of course, just said there that um, if you've gone through these steps, you must, you know, that it becomes hard to do this. And I'm not sure there's any. And I think it's, it's there's many possibilities. So I'm not sort of. So I'm actually not sure. If you pray, if you meditate, if you read certain books, if you, there are logical conclusions. I don't think there are either. There may, there, there may or there may not be. I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of Susan Wolf's essay. Have you read Moral Saints or essay? You don't necessarily. No, no. Uh, it's it's a really it's a, it's an important essay. Um, let, let me just say, I think that what's interesting here is 
Now we're talking about just being an expansive person, a person capable of subtle feeling of yeah. tracing the connections between multiple different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. The question is now, how do we, how do we grapple with that in terms of our relations with others? Do we, there seems to be a, a few key options. One option is we become morally burdened. Um, now, this is the big criticism of, of Peter Singer, this philosopher who has pushed people to take on so many wider commitments. Another option would be we say, forget ethics. There's no way we're ever going to take care of the things we need to take care of through our personal commitments. Yeah. We need political systemic solutions. And I need to be smart about what I advocate for politically. Right. Now, once we go down that road, there's two paths. One is let we need good technocratic solutions to deal with this stuff because it's too much for people to consider all the time. Yeah. There's another more activist path. So, so there's different versions there you can are. take on. Yeah. Another one is we could wind up cutting off our feelings because we feel too much. Mm-hmm. Um, which is always a danger. So you become the cold intellectual or yeah. um, the, the cold urban esthete. Um, another is that you just simply sort of become immersed in, I've seen this in jazz musicians, that kind of kind, gentle jazz musician who doesn't think about the world. Mm-hmm. They've got a gentle smile and warmth to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that in a, in a lot of spiritual practitioners. So, so there's a lot of options. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've, I've had to make my own decision at age 53, and you know, that's my decision is neither here nor there. Um, the, you're you're the guest on the show. Your your decisions are what is important. All right. Uh, so I, I get to dictate personal... that we all we all do activism. Yeah, I don't see. I don't agree with that. I don't. I don't. I don't subscribe. I, I just can't subscribe to such a generous definition of activism. I just can't. I mean, to no, me, an I, activist I is. A, are you? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm. I'm being playful. Oh, you're play, being um, playful. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't even know what activism's a very funny thing. Especially, maybe this is going to send us in another direction. Especially in the information age. Yeah. Um, after social media. Oh, We're yeah. just about everybody through liking and sharing and posting, um, often on a daily basis, yeah. is involved in a little bit of political activism. Ah, but see what I, but, ah, but I would say that they're not doing activism. I'm saying they're living in the internet age, which is this whole age yeah. with news. So you know, we go, you know, you and I go around about what to uh, chicken or egg or. Yeah, 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 I do. I do think we're in a completely different age, and it's a mistake to use old categories, pre-digital analog categories, to describe what yeah. people are doing. So yeah, so that's just the nature of everybody being online and doing online stuff. But, yeah. But let's give a little thought to that. So, okay. so in the '90s, when we were both doing activism, yeah, I would have called someone an activist who showed up to a meeting once a week that lasted an hour and a half, a yes. green party meeting or an, some kind of environmental meeting. Yes. And they, they occasionally go to a protest once every three months that lasts two hours mm-hmm. and they might hand out flyers once in a while. They don't even read the news that much, but that's their big activist phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those were people that would be a part of the group and they'd come in and out of the group. They, they, that kind of person didn't usually last long. Now I would 
wager that the average person with a college education now who's on Twitter or Facebook does vastly more than that. And oh, of course they do. Sure. Sure. As an activist. Oh, sure. I don't, so I want to be very clear. I'm saying that so, – so they are and they aren't. So again, the th- nature of the internet age is that you know, if everybody – if everything is something in this – right, you know, that's the thing in logic, then nobody is, right? It's sort of um, – yeah. and I think that's the internet age is that it's doing that. And so I guess that's, you know, that's my, would be my, I, I miss those days, those days, the nineties, you know, I remember. I, I do too. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable to me how, how incredibly difficult it was to muster up that kind of work. Well, I, I, so from your perspective, we were trying to get things to happen. And so you, you remember yeah. the difficulties but for me, I remember the beauty of people's faces. Like I remember I was marching against the Clinton welfare bill, yeah. which is something I felt so strongly about. I was so against that. Um, and just the people in that march were beautiful people. I really like – like um, that's just one example. But nice. They were really beautiful people. And they were, so it was, I guess the human part of politics I guess is what I would like about it. Even though I've been attacking the political, there is – you know, that's human – that's Where else did you see the human in politics? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, so I would, I would say that there are, so I would say basically politics, uh, 75% sucks and maybe, you know, the rest, <laughs> the rest is okay. <laughs> I, yeah, that's just, I'm sorry. It's just kind of, yeah. So I don't know. It, it's funny. I, I didn't like there's so many kinds of work that are horrible at first that require cultivation to appreciate. Yep. Uh, m- my guess is that most types of work, the vast majority even, um, your first eight hours of it is grueling. Yeah. Uh, unless you've been training for a long time to do to do that. Yeah. I think politics, political activism or political engagement is very similar. Um, I used to hate writing just mm-hmm. quite recently. The, the first book of mine that you read in mm-hmm. 2014. Um, Convergence. I, I hated writing that. Oh. It was so painful every time. I think the prose comes out very poetic mm-hmm. and I'm touching on a lot of beauty in it. But it was so hard to write. My second book was hard to write. My third one got a little bit easier. By the time I got to my fourth book, which was really my fifth, sixth, or seventh based on various projects that didn't wind up get getting put into a book that wound up three-quarters complete or half complete, um, by that point, I began to love it. So that now mm. all aspects of my writing and activism are a great joy. That's interesting. It's, it's, Facilitating so, meaning. Now, what's joyful about it is, I, it's like improving in music. You're pulling something out yeah. of yourself that needs to be said. Yeah. Um, and so I have the ability to say anything I want, and I've got an audience now that I can say it to. That's so. It's not just empowering. It it, it allows for it allows for me to unleash my highest ideals and know that without any sense of despair, like yeah. what like you get when you first move into politics and you feel like you can't get anything done. I'd say something similar with facilitating I mean, meetings. At first, it, in college, it was grueling. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I understand. I understand a little bit of what you're talking about. Um, you're talking about something being hard at first, and that's what piano was for me. Music was very hard at first. Yeah. But no matter how hard it was, I had an initial love. And right. I think I think what was always missing for me is that powerful love for the political. So that even though I went through all these, I went through a long journey with that of going through the, the pain and all that, and, and having things be some things be pleasurable. I just, I just, I did decide against it at the in the end, and maybe it's because so maybe it's a complex thing of how much do you love something? Do you love something just a little bit, or you know? I think it's might be that. Uh, what do you what do you think of that? That's in, so. I mean, I, I would say thank God for you because you've written this book about where we are. I mean, do you want to talk about that now? Because yeah, I, let's I could, dive into it. I mean, it's it's a provocative title, and you don't mince words, and you, you know, you're. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of thankful you did this. Uh, you know, I'm really thankful you did this. Uh, the fascism this time. Do you mind talking a little bit about where we are? I mean, I know that you're. Yeah. So, I, I mean, in in the broadest sense, we have been in a long phase. Of human history. I mean, if we start with, we could go back as far as the modern era, but um, more so going back to World War II, even more so going back just to 1989. Um, or we could say at some juncture between 1965 and 1995, when we could say the information age kicked off, we've been in a long phase of. Um, Developing human capacities in in at least developed countries, we um, mostly the developed West, but increasingly the um, other parts of the world as well, where we have more freedoms, more abilities to express ourselves, more things to choose from, um, more subtle things we're able to freely express about ourselves through the way we dress, um, sexual preferences, um, uh, subtle ethnic, um, subtle ethnic differences from others around us that, that we can freely express without feeling ostracized disabilities that, that can be, um, shared with others without humiliation. We've been in this long phase and, and in that sense, we've been moving to a more complex integrated society, more developed society where we're more socially free and, Mm -hmm capable of expressing more but that's really hard to hold together it's hard to hold together one immediate i'm listening to this and i'm saying i really like it i really love uh uh, i really loved anthony apaya's book cosmopolitanism yes and is that the name was that yeah and i and i think that you him i think all three of us are kind of in the way on the same side and i so so you so i guess this is a long way i don't want to talk over talk but are you saying that this nightmare is a result of those people that want to halt improvement yes. or, or, or actually? Yeah. Or it's, it's extremely difficult to live in very free spaces for long. Um, think about a time when you had a long period in your life where you didn't have any schedule. Um, now, of course, if you go for a very long period of time without a schedule, you learn to live with it and function well. But that, that's your ordinary life. You mean like you mean like COVID nineteen, like the pandemic? 
Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people had no schedule and they didn't know what to do with their time. Mm. Um, uh, but there's more than that. There's complexities we're confronting. There's technological complexities. There's understanding the world when there's vastly more information. There's moral burdens that um, have been placed on us, um, sometimes by others, sometimes by ourselves, simply through recognizing um, the interiority of a multiplicity of different beings that that we weren't seeing in previous ages, um, like future generations um, mm-hmm. and their needs um, that, that we have some debt to. So all this stuff is very difficult to confront. And now this, right, but, this but, but I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to press you on this because have you considered that perhaps insane is difficult. It becomes a, a, um, a fulfilling prophecy. That, in other words, that, is, is it – so I have two questions. Is it really difficult or – see, because to me, what we're seeing is the express political will – and this is going to sound really harsh – of those people in any given society who either because they're more hateful or just more narrow or just in some sense are uncomfortable with this complexity, just want to destroy it. Could it yeah. be something as simple as that? Rather than a developmental grand theory of history, do you see that, my? That, that's interesting. I mean, that's my take on what's happening. Um, so, yeah. So let's let's start from the other point of view. Yeah. All of this complexity—it's beautiful. It's like going to New York City for the first time and having a good experience. It's just so big. Mm-hmm. And now, from that point of view, some people won't have that experience. Yeah. Either they're more introverted, mm-hmm. they're um, they're less educated, they've been less exposed to the world, their social skills aren't as good, they're less dynamic, they, they move at a slower pace, they need more routine in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be hard for them. But I also want to acknowledge that even for the people who have the beautiful experience, there's still a lot of difficulty. Mm-hmm. It, there's more to maneuver. Um, it requires more skill. Um, it's not like playing highly complex music isn't fun, but it's more difficult Mm -hmm. than really simple stuff for a lot of people. Um, so, so you're right. There's people who are just going to say no to that for various reasons. Well, it's, it's, it's more than that. So it isn't just that they're going to say no to that. It's that they'll form a movement and an identity campaign yeah. on the virtue of that and actually start to want to run things like run governments. That's the problem. Yes. So again, we're back to my original thesis that the, the political itself is the problem. See, see, I'm right. right. See, yeah. Again, I don't want to, again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying have no government, have no taxes. I'm just saying that how much of this stuff is just the, the inevitable disappointment of the political itself and that the left is going to have to sort of eventually grapple with that. Yeah, part of the part of the problem. So there's one version of political activism where you say you've got to get involved if you're a good person, because if you're not involved, selfish people are going to be taking advantage of us all. Interesting. Now that that's the one thing where it's, it's a duty to be an activist because mm. in, you've got to have a certain number of people who are politically engaged for mm. other people to prevent the greedy and ambitious from using our institutions to um, siphon off our wealth to the people at the top and 
um, turn us into their slaves. Um, now, that's that's one version, but another version, another problem that you confront is a lot of people are going to have the same thoughts about getting involved, and they're going to um, have a completely different view than yours. Now, now, you can say their motivations are terrible. They're they're being drawn into politics um, out of hate, mm-hmm. out of um, out of um, out of resentment, the, the French idea of you're, you, you're at the bottom of the heap and um, at the bottom of the social ladder and you want to create a new order just so you'll be at the top of it. But a lot of that stuff is happening among people on the left who are, I would consider doing really great work. Mm-hmm. They're also motivated by these resentments that mm-hmm. um, are tied to their place in the social ladder where they want to create a whole new order. Um, so I can't say that's bad per se. Well, uh-huh. no, no, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not. I hope I'm not. I mean, I'm being a little more polemical than I normally would be on my show. Right. But I hope not too polemical. So I want. I also want to clarify and make clear. I'm not against the political full stop. Right. Obviously, it's part of life. But I guess what I would say is that um, we're seeing the emergence of a globalized problem that has its roots in flaws that are always in every politics. Do you see what kind of what I mean? Yes. And what do you, do you think that that's not, do you think that's invalid or too, or too? No, no, I think it's, I think it's quite valid. I mean, I think there needs to be, there needs to be a, a bar that's crossed before people are able to express all kinds of things. So I, I always felt like, if you're going to go countercultural, there needs to be a little bit of a bar that you're going to cross. Um, one of the one of the one of the aspects of it is, I think a person who's going to turn against their culture needs to be able to do it on their own to some extent. They at least need to have the strength of mind to express express what they're really feeling. Um, it, it gets kind of dangerous when I'm at, I'm at, I have to ask you a question. Who are you are you thinking? Yeah. Who are you talking about? Are you talking about people that are against society altogether, or who are anti-social? Oh, I'm thinking take any any number of small countercultures that we might have grown up with: punks, metalheads, oh, uh, hippies, um, or bikers, or yeah. th- they've all kind of gone against the culture in their own way. Now, mm. are you expressing something? Okay, so if you're going to go against the culture. You have to be able to. You have to at least be willing to address the things you don't like. See what I would say. What what I'd say, with all due respect to those movements, although I may not respect them as much as other people, they're falling prey to the same. In other words, they're assuming the primacy of the political. So even if somebody right, so even whether it's a metalhead or a punk, they're giving just so so much outsized importance to this thing. So even when they're against that thing, they're still being defined and governed by it. So, so, so what, I, what I would say, hold that thought, just, what I would say is that the mistake, if the degree to which, so I, you know, I think our society suffers from people that are countercultural, that just want to destroy. Yes. And our society also suffers from conformists that just want to affirm the status quo. Yes. I actually think both are a problem. In, in, I agree. Now, no. But I just wanted to use the example of there's sort of a bar that I, I want to see people cross um, 
for their challenge to society to work out well for themselves mm-hmm. and others. And I think that's it's sort of similar with politics. If you're going to throw yourself into the political arena, mm-hmm. um, you, you should have at least done a little research into the issues you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I used to say, have you read a book on it? At least a book. Okay, yeah. not a book. Well, at least a few articles. If You know, like... If, if you're going to express something in a post on Facebook, which is publishing it to everybody you know, mm-hmm. which is which is quite extreme in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, yeah. that's a really powerful thing to do. Yeah. You haven't even read a few articles on this issue. Have yeah. you dealt with some of the counter arguments? Are you at least willing to engage the counter arguments? Um, are you willing to sit through a meeting um, to help organize? Uh, one meeting to help mm-hmm. organize a strategy of how we're going to get Biden to become a more progressive president before you're going to trash him. W- would you at least hear what other hear and address? I mean, I just want I just want the dude to be president. I actually, <laughs> frankly, don't care. I mean, again, I don't want. Again, this is my problem with progressives. I think progressives are fighting a fight from another another kind of era. They're, they're, yeah. It's like they think it's 1992 and there's all this money. And there's all this affluence that we can just sort of have socialism now. We're actually in the opposite, you know, Bernie Sanders notwithstanding. I'm sure I'll get pushback on this. We're actually not in a moment like that, actually, unfortunately. But that's a whole – I don't want to get, get too – but um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Did I did – I, yeah, 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 I'm going to hold off on that one yeah. where we might disagree and we'd have a lot of interesting things to talk about yeah. just so we can go deeper into what's going on with this fascism. So, yeah, so it's kind important of together, because, yeah. some of these thoughts we're in this era where people can participate in politics so easily, vastly more than they could before they're encouraged to do so, um, in a way that's completely haphazard without any sort of, um, checks on their, um, half conscious expressions. Um, we're, meanwhile, we're, we're in a, we're living in a very wide, complex, diverse world that can be really beautiful if you know how to maneuver it, but can be really scary if you don't. And so we've got these movements of people um, all over the world who've not only said no to it, but they're they're trying to tear it down. They're wanting to yeah. attack it. They're wanting to attack it from the position of somehow I wound up on the bottom of the social ladder and I don't want to be there and I want to create a new order say an order that's organized by Trump or Putin mm-hmm. or um, um, Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, I want to overturn the whole moral order. Um, and now what is it we're attacking? Well, since the world is complex and the world is multicultural, mm-hmm. the world is difficult to maneuver now and the world is globalized, what they're attacking is the world itself. Yeah, it's awful. That's exactly so, what they're doing. It's really, yeah, so we that agree that – yeah, it's awful. That becomes nihilistic. Now, I think – no, nihilism is a funny thing because there's a kind of nihilism where someone is hateful and they want to destroy things. Um, and there's another kind of nihilism – that simply everything around me is beating down on me and I don't like it and I'm going to lash out at everything. Yeah. Um, and I think you see this in punk rock scenes where you have people who are truly terrible human beings drawn to these movements and you have other people who are angsty 
adolescents who grow up to be quite expansive, wonderful, right. functional people. Um, I guess we want to make clear the latter is totally different, right? You're, talk, you're talking about oppression. You're talking about people that just have a lot of suffering. I mean, if there's people that have enormous suffering and they want to destroy everything, well, that's, that's an understand, one understandable response. You I mean, a lot of the, a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the punk rock or motive. I, I, I know I've noticed, I've never seen any studies on it, but I just noticed in my childhood that the punks usually came from wealthier families. They might, they might've had more pressure in their families. Um, they might've found that the facade was more bothersome. I didn't, I didn't ever really know these skinheads. Yeah. I mean, so you've got a whole different kind of punk there. And then I mean, my, my, my comments, punk. my comments were not about a movement. I was just talking about suffering in general. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, poverty, you know, poverty in general. I wasn't thinking, so I, sorry if I wasn't, you oh. know, I don't, I don't see things as you know, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit, um, dense. I don't, I don't, again, because I, because I habitually systematically don't look, look at things in terms of group formations, Right. I could be kind of a bad actor. I could sort of not play along, play along with a census view of reality. So I don't, I don't think in terms of hippies and punks. And I do, and I sort of just comes out. Sometimes I'll do jujitsu and call into question those categories. Yeah. But okay, but, but, but fair. So this is this is what's uh, motivated you to write this really, I think, good book, accurate book in many respects. Thank you. Um, and so you're in the middle of talking about what's happening. Go ahead. It's it's um, you're calling it fascism, and you're saying yes. Do you want to ask why I, why would I call it fascism? Um, given that fascism was a very distinct 20th century phenomenon, I wouldn't ask that question. As you know, I do think we're kind of into in an internet age. Yeah, and I do think that that's a new epoch. So according to that. None of this stuff we're saying really is accurate, not what you would say, right, according to that theory, which I hold. It's unfair to me. Again, I wanna, I'm leaving all that to the side. So, that I'm play, so I'm playing along, right, with you. I don't have a problem with it. Great, great. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I don't I – because don't, I don't, that would be another kind of show. That would be yeah. like a show discussing the, the Shoah and discussing genocides and, you know, what counts. I mean, I certainly don't agree with Noam Chomsky about the current moment. I don't. Which aspect of what he's saying? Well, the aspect, because I don't, I think it's absurd to use as an example, abstract species destruction or earth destruction and compare that to targeting a million people. And that, that, that's clearly, again, without going into that, I, I happen to disagree with that philosophically, but you know, I guess, so again, I guess I'm revealing more than I, than I learned, but, but I would say it's very, very bad. So I'm saying what we're experiencing now is really, really bad. Yeah. Um, do you find that that's an important question that people challenge you on calling the F word as we're going to say the F word? Or? Yeah. Yeah. People, people constantly challenge the, the category of, of fascism. Mm -hmm. And, um, let's just, let's just deal with, you know, 20th century fascism was a very unusual phenomenon in the sense that, um, you had these, um, thinkers, fascist thinkers who laid out these ideologies that were adopted by movements that were often looking into the future. Um, they, they had aspects of futurism while also wanting to harken back to a more authoritarian or patriarchal past. Yeah. Um, there was a greater sense of order 
um, a greater sense of youth to them. Um, they were orderly, youthful movements. You were more likely to see them marching in goose step, wearing all the same mm-hmm. clothes. Yep. Um, and here we have this this incredibly slovenly um, movement uh, organized under an erratic leader um, mm-hmm. who doesn't seem at all able to control himself or even able to convey a sense of self-control. Um, it's not as if Hitler, the artist who woke up at noon, huh. was so in control of himself either, um, who'd rage like a maniac in his speeches, but mm-hmm. he at least was able to convey that sense of control. Yeah. Uh, so we've got to acknowledge these differences. Um, mm, yep. But what's, what's similar is, I think at the subtlest level, um, there's a kind of despotism um, to to both kinds of fascism, where you have a, a leader whose purposes, for lack of a better word, are are evil, um, who's who's aiming to control power for themselves, um, and they're willing to shape the whole society around their own needs. But what's interesting now, you have that going back as in every mode of production I could think of, you'd have that kind of despotism. But what gets interesting in the modern age in democracies is in order to hold that kind of power, you need to pull a mass of people together for it. So fascism becomes the sort of evil despotism of modernity. Mm -hmm. What the fascist tries to do is they try to overturn a moral order um, that, that, facilitates people's cooperation Mm -hmm. that maintains functional social and political and economic institutions Mm -hmm. um, that is governed by a wide array of social norms. And they want to smash all of that in order to institute their new order. And you find Mm -hmm. that both in 20th century fascism and in 21st century century fascism, as I'm defining it. Now in order to do that, to hold themselves together, they create a strong in group. They usually need a strong out group. Um, they also want to bully others. They feel weak inside. The The order didn't work for them previously. They feel insecure inside. Mm-hmm. So they lash out at the weak and marginalized, usually minorities of some sort. Um, all across the world, we're seeing this among what are commonly called right-wing populist groups that I would usually call fascist. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's these attacks on um, the outsiders Now, they're trying to fight this vast, overwhelming, complex, globalized reality. So how do you do it? Well, you have to shut out the world. So you use endless propaganda to paint a picture of the world. And it's not going to fit the world. So you have to somehow, you have to somehow teach people how to say that two and two makes five Mm -hmm. as um, as George Orwell so poignantly expressed in 1984. Um, How do you get them to assert with everything in them, something they know isn't true Um, that has to be accomplished because they're denying the world uh, and assaulting it at every turn. And these movements are always going to end in destruction if given time. 
In this case, right. we're already seeing it with the pandemic, in my opinion. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably it might true. just as well have been a, um, a globalized war with Iran or North Korea mm-hmm. um, or a nuclear war, um, mm-hmm. a full-on nuclear war. Trump was fascinated by nuclear weapons when he first came to office, mm-hmm. constantly talked about using them, and even used a bomb in Afghanistan that was called the mother of all bombs that many people mm. compared to a nuclear weapon. That's so beautifully put. Um, just that listening to you here in this podcast episode, just lay out uh, with such clarity. Uh, I really appreciate you going into, Thank you. into the length you did about that because it is, it, it affects all of us. Certainly it is most important. Do you mind if I uh, mention something from the book, or if you want to read from it or talk about it when you just? Oh, God, please when, do mention you, anything. That no, but no, because uh, in the book you say that democracy is the most important thing. I think how you put it is that the destruction of democratic institutions is worse than anything else. You you actually play, say it's worse than the climate change problem. Do you mind yes. reading that passage, or at least? Talking about that, or, or the, um, do you have it to read, or would you? I, oh, I thought we, I thought you would you would read it, but but um. Oh, I don't I don't have it present, but I can certainly talk about it. Um, d- democracy is um, it's a foundational process that allows us to achieve to achieve countless other goods. Right. So anything that would might not be achieved by the people in power because they have no interest in achieving it can be achieved through democracy. So that's going to allow us to protect minorities. Um, If the ruling group is, is not comprised of women to protect women's rights, it's going to allow us to, um, to protect workers, the environment, and it's going to allow us to take on climate change. But democracy does something else. It engages citizens in the political process, um, at, at the very least, a significant portion of the population in a functioning democracy is going to vote. And in order to vote, they're going to follow the issues. They're not going to hide from the issues because they feel they have a stake in it, mm-hmm. in the system, whatever extent it's democratic. They usually identify themselves more with the nation or whatever level of government it is through which they have democratic input, um, which is going to make them feel some greater debt to whatever beings are within the nation, um, the people in the nation, the ecosystems. So it inspires all of these things. But then on a global level, if we're ever going to have a global climate solution, mm-hmm. um, we need to coordinate among governments that care, that have all yeah. these features. And the main ones that have been driving this are continually democracies. That, um, sure. Like almost all of the social goods progressives want to achieve, um, that social justice activists want to achieve, that feminists want to achieve, mm-hmm. that GBLTQ activists want to achieve, um, almost all of these – wouldn't happen outside of a democracy. And usually in a non-democratic, under a non-democratic state, there's going to be massive dysfunctions as well Mm -hmm. because the economic institutions almost always um, become structured so as to benefit 
the elites who are running the government. Theo, can I ask you a question about democracy further? Would you say alongside um, Walt Whitman, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, some of the more metaphysical or abstract theorists of democracy, that democracy is an ethical good in and of itself and transcends the political? Do you define democracy that broadly or no? I certainly think it it can be. I think we can look at it that way and experience it that way, that um, that democracy affirms the dignity of all people within that political system, <clears throat> that democracy mm-hmm. would um, recognize each of our voices, that um, in so doing, it expands, it, it leads to a more expansive notion of what our human groupings are and what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, it's a good in and of itself. Um, what I was talking about previously was all means to various ends. Right. I think it's important, though, that we at least be able to look at democracy through the lens of being a good in and of itself and not just a means to other ends. Right, just not just the instrumental means. Instrumental it's not just instrumental. That, that's why it's, when you that's why when you name these social movements, I think a lot of these are all these social movements are themselves democracies, if I can put it that way, or it, expressions of democracy. Yes. I don't I think I don't think they're just partisan. I think yes. they're deeper. I think they're both wider and deeper than how they're at least certainly how the right wing talks about them. And as you know, the right right wing just disparages these movements as if somehow yeah. they're they're single issue or, or minority movements. No, they're 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 expressions of our humanity. And, and, and I think I think so. And that, so I guess that's kind of what I was trying to say earlier. If um, that resonates with you, absolutely. And then I would I would agree with um, Mark Yassin strongly mm. that democracy fosters our development, um, fosters our capacities as human beings, um, and it's expressive of our development that as we develop as human beings and as societies um, with more capacities, we inevitably want a say in how our lives are governed. And I think there's a certain beauty that that is an end in and of, of itself in recognizing that we we have the capacity to shape our futures with others. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a relationship, yep. um, every, everybody listening is either likely to be either in a, um, in some kind of group that does things together or that mm-hmm. they've been a part of a family or in a relationship and the capacity to ask, what do we want and how can we achieve it together? Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult but beautiful way to bond. And so I want to embrace democracy on that level as well. Mm-hmm. And this is, why, this is why I just want to embrace someone like Biden over someone like Bernie, who I preferred and usually am far more inspired by, and just mm-hmm. say, all right, we're just a part, I'm a moderate, I'm just a part of a political process where we're all trying to work right. this out together and we've got to like, compromise and work with one another and reason and sure we're going to have to tie some things together in a sloppy yeah. way and i'm going to wind up supporting things that i don't support deep down inside 
um, because life is messy. And, um, but what's, what's beautiful here is we're all in this together. That's a very communitarian way of looking. Well, I'm, I'm myself am a a critic of communitarianism, but but putting that aside, you know, I, I like many things about Bernie Sanders. I mean, he certainly, I mean, I, what I could say positively about them, about him is that he certainly has more integrity than your average politician, and that you know, and, and that's probably large part of his appeal uh, to, to his to his movement and his, and his um, devotees, right? So, absolutely. But I but I want to uh, we're getting we're getting close. I think, unfortunately, uh, to I always hate saying goodbye is what I always say, um, <laughs> but we're close to goodbye, and I just want the audience to know about this book. The fascism this time, and the global future of democracy by Theo Horish. Yes, and uh, get that book, and uh, if you can, Theo, do you anything else you want to say? I, maybe I cut you off too soon. Is there anything else you want? I, I want to ask you a question about about my book because yeah, um, your audience might not know. Um, apart from you, I'm the most broadly and deeply read person I think I might know. It's hard to judge. And I think you're the most. Okay. Um, Now that's among a lot of academics and accomplished, really accomplished thinkers. Yeah. I may very well be wrong. Some people don't don't ever reference the people they read and it really doesn't matter that much. I, I, I started out a little slower than most people intellectually. So um, well, Theo, so Theo to, be to, fair, to, be, to be fair, if you're running a rock band and running songs and playing soccer and basketball, I mean, there's only 24 hours of the day. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's pretty – I mean, uh, to be fair, that's, that's quite a lot to accomplish. I didn't start – I didn't. I started intellectually when I was 17 or 18. And, okay, and, but um, that's – yeah, I mean that's – So is there yeah. any – are there any works you would compare my book to? What's the what's the closest what you, what thing? What do you mean compare? Like what works? Well, well, anything when you read it? Did, were, were there other oh. authors that came up? I'm I'm interested in this um, both for the audience, but also for myself after this wonderful conversation. Well, I think your book falls under the category of highly accessible public political writing. Yeah. So I would place it in the same category as say Tim Snyder's book on tyranny. Nice. Which is a also a wonderful book. I mean, not to compare. I mean, they're both good. I don't want to rank rank them, but I'm saying if you're asking about that, that's the genre. I would place it, I guess, in that genre. If that's nice. a genre, was that was that what you what you intended? It's with exactly it? what I was asking, and it's exactly yeah. the the book I thought was most like it. And yeah. I would compare them. Yeah. And I think that my book is not as good as his. <laughs> really. And other people should read his first. Well, I don't know. I mean, what I would say is that you do think you do things that he actually doesn't do. In fairness to you, it's true. I mean, his book, your book, your book is comprehensive in a different way. What, yes. I, what I think the difference is is your activism. See, what I, I guess it gets back to the beginning of our conversation on this podcast episode. I really think that all those years of organizing and learning how to communicate with people, the, what I would call the emotional intelligence. I think you have that in spades, and I think that shows up in the writing. And, nice. I, and, I, and I would say that that actually it, it, is it advantageous to your text, to your book. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you think see what I'm saying, but I, I absolutely see it, and and I feel it. And I, I actually, for all the negative things I can say about social media, mm-hmm. constant dialogue and debate on these issues over four years' time on Facebook mm-hmm. really honed my arguments. You mean, you mean like really flexing a muscle? It forced me to get to the point. Flexing a muscle that I guess you're saying you're kind of flexing, flexing it, muscles. It, strengthening i strengthening them through that and um it 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 just forced me to get to the point and people on facebook do not tolerate extraneous arguments intellectual play Hmm. um thinking for its own sake and i really don't like that but if i want to write a meaningful book that's going to have a strong effect Mm -hmm. It puts me in a better position than anyone. I mean, I'm just engaging with so many different types of people that are engaged politically, often through debate, often through dialogue, often about what we should do as activists at this moment. Um, How should we debate these people? Well, I'm debating them. I'm moving from writing my piece to going over and debating people who are not on a high level. Uh-huh. That are trolls. Yeah, uh, they're trying to rile me up. So what's going on with them? And yeah, Theo. Anyway. Before we say, before I say goodbye, is there anything else additionally you want to say either about about your book, uh, where people can get it, or how people should get it, or anything um, else? Or uh, no, the book's available on Amazon.com. Theo Horesh, the fascism this time and the global future of democracy. It's only one of two books that I'm aware of that really lay out fascism as we're experiencing it in a highly coherent way um, that gets into some of the philosophy but is accessible. The other would be Jason Stanley's um, How Fascism Works. There's, of course, others that are going to use it, but in a kind of comprehensive way. Um, It's worth um, checking out the beginning of it on Amazon This was a wonderful conversation. I love the way we wove together so many strands of thinking Mm -hmm. and feeling and expression and got to the heart of um, the heart of the book towards the end. So thank you. Yeah. I'm always love having people come on my show, able to express who they are and express themselves and have, have it be about them and their viewpoint. So Thank you for doing that on this episode. And thank you for, for both for your friendship, long-standing friendship, as well as writing this book. And a, and a really wonderful discussion, Theo. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a, have a good Take day. Care. Goodbye. Thanks.